0: Graders, you guys are dismissed to go back to your classes also. Amen. Thank you. So, if you're a kid and you want to head out to Kid Zone, you can do that now. Thank you, Melanie. Thank you, worship team, for uh, that set. Good to see Skip and Keturah. Uh, thank you for being here, guys. So, if you have your Bibles with you and you'd like to open them with me, we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 11. That's 1 Samuel chapter 11. I've got a question for you. Do you have any enemies? Do you have an enemy? So, so when you were uh in elementary school, did you have an el- enemy? When you're in middle school, do you have an enemy? High school, do you, ha- do you have one now? Do you have an enemy? So, did you notice what we sang today on the topic of enemies? You crush the enemy underneath my feet. All right, I need someone shorter than my wife to tell me who that enemy is. (laughs) Ezra and Cheyenne are pretty close to the same height. Ezra claims he's taller, though. So wh- which enemy is that? Satan. Satan. You crush Satan underneath. Okay, so so look at those last two words there. Underneath my feet. Is that true? You crush the enemy, enemy underneath my feet. I'm, I'm just gonna be honest with you, and you might lose respect for me. But I read that and I said, I don't know if that's true. My feet? God certainly crushes Satan. That's going all the way back to the promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's going all the way back to the beginning of the story. But my feet? So I'm like, well, I'm going to look it up. So I did. And this is a reference to Romans chapter 16, verse 20. And it says this, The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath whose feet? Your feet. Your feet. Hey, has that happened yet? No, that has not happened yet. We still have an enemy in the world. Peter writes to the churches about this, and he says in First Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Your enemy, or your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. Okay, so your enemy, and you have one, you may not know it, you may not feel like it, and that's exactly where he wants you. Your enemy prowls around like a raging, roaring lion, seeking someone to what? Make friends with? What does it say? To devour That is violent, (laughs) destructive. Look, Satan is not just annoying. He is evil, and he wants to devour you. He is not just frustrating. He is evil, and he wants to devour you. He is evil. (laughs) It's not soul-devouring evil. This is your enemy. This is your enemy. Now, a lot of us, I think, just kind of wander through life just totally oblivious to this. It's easy for me to wander through life totally oblivious to this. Just go from one task to the next and not really think about the fact that I am in a spiritual War and maybe you find yourself in the same place just kind of moving from thing to thing to thing Not thinking about everything spiritual that is going on around us that we're in we're in war and we have a real enemy The closest we can come sometimes I think to understanding that we have a real enemy that is seeking to devour us Might be sometimes we wake up to this when we are faced with our addictions when we see our addictions we know that is taking more and more and more of me that is devouring me i have to face this and hate this and deal with this sometimes it's when we see that the idols we've set up in our lives like our goals or like people in our lives that we think we can't live without or like peer groups that we think we can't live live without, that demand more and more and more of us, that demand more and more compromises from us, that we realize that is devouring me. Sometimes it's like the old wounds or the old hurts. You know, as I was going into the ministry, my dad said, you know, Nathan, it's not all the stuff on the news that you really have to watch out for. It's really going to cause you the most grief. My dad's a pastor too, by the way. He said, you know what's going to hurt you the most? Is you're going to be hurt by people that are still hurting from old wounds. And as those old wounds fester and turn into bitterness, they're going to burn those people up and they're going to burn you up. As you get close to them to help them. What if there's something bigger... And more evil that stands behind that bitterness from those old wounds or those idols that would consume us or those addictions. What if there is something bigger and stronger and more evil? What if there's an enemy that stands behind that stuff? There is. So as we go through this text, we're going to see the people faced with an enemy. And you might be thinking about how would the enemy be trying to devour me? And if you're thinking about how is the enemy seeking to devour me? You might see yourself in this text and see how God saves. So here we are 1 Samuel chapter 11 verse 1. Then, Nahash. Okay, so I thought it would be start, helpful to start with uh, some Hebrew. Uh, just because, I don't know. It's, trust me, it'll be cool. Okay, so... <laughs> why did you laugh at that? I didn't think it was funny. All right, so Nahash, that's the Hebrew word for Nahash. And it is the same exact Hebrew word in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. You know what that word is? Can you take a guess? Snake. Then the guy named Snake, the Ammonite, ancient Hebrew, ancient um, enemies of the Israelites. Then the guy named Snake, you know, the king, the enemy named Snake, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. Jabesh is the name of the city, Gilead is the name of the region. Um, like maybe you'd get confused with other cities named Jabesh. So it's Jabesh Gilead, the Jabesh and Gilead and all the people and I'm sorry, all the men of Jabesh said, to uh, the snake that was, that was surrounding them and besieging them. They say to this guy, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. How about we make a deal? Should you make a deal? somebody that's evil. The snake says, sure, we can make a deal. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, on this condition, I will make a treaty with you. That I, not you, you don't get to do it. I'm going to come in there with a sharp stick and gouge out all your right eyes. Why? Why would he come in there and gouge out all their right eyes? Why would he insist on doing this? He wouldn't even let them do it. He's going to come in there and gouge out their right eyes. Well, it would disfigure them. It would disfigure them so that for the rest of their lives, they would know that they surrendered. It would disfigure them so that they would know for the rest of their lives that they live in a city of people that surrendered. For the rest of their lives, they would know that They're conquered people because of the way they're disfigured. Can you see any corollaries with sin here? Can you? Have you ever seen sin disfigure someone? On this condition, I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes. So so he wants to disfigure them. He also wants to disqualify them from battle. So if you have ever tried to aim... A bow and arrow. So think about you put your left hand on the bow if you're right-handed. And you draw with your right hand. And then how do you aim as you look down that shaft of the arrow? Well, you close your left eye and you open your right eye. So he's saying, I'm going to make it so that you can't fight. If you've ever tried to throw a spear accurately, you close your left eye and you aim with your right eye. I'm going to disqualify you so you can't fight. If you ever held up a shield... And you try to lean out from behind the shield and fight with your right hand. Well, if you're missing your right eye, you have to stick your head out a lot further. I'm going to disqualify you so that you can't fight. And above all, he says, above all, I'm going to disgrace all of y'all because you can't protect yourselves. And thus bring disgrace on all Israel. Can you see any correlation between that and sin? That and what Satan, our enemy, would want to do to us. And the elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. If no one comes and no one helps, we will know that the only thing we can do is surrender. And you know what? He gives it to him because he's pretty sure that no one's coming. No one cares and no one will help. And when the messengers came to Gabeah of Saul... They reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. They don't do anything, they just weep aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. And the Hebrew there is literally, his nose swelled greatly. So I I immediately thought of a cartoon where, you know, the cartoon character gets hit in the nose and his nose gets big and red and swells greatly. But that's not the idea. The idea is somebody getting so mad, their nostrils flare. Think of when you are just raging mad and you're going... (laughs) That's how mad Saul was. And that anger, listen to me, that anger that Saul felt because of what the snake was doing to those people was a fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit of God rushes on Saul and he has this righteous indignation of this is not okay and we have to do something right now. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces. And he sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, like, there's no refrigeration. These oxen, they get cut up. There's flies. There's a puddle. They stink. And here are these guys pulling these carts. I assume they're carts. I hope they're not slung over their shoulders. And they're pulling these carts, and they, their message is this. You better show up. Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so it shall be done to his trucks. This is what's going to happen to your fleet of farm vehicles if you don't show up and help. And the dread of the Lord fell upon the people. So God meets Saul and gives Saul righteous fury. And then God meets the people and motivates the people so that the people will show up. And the dread of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out as one man. And then he mustered them at Bezek. So if you follow the green line up from Gabeah, where Saul was, he goes north uh, east, and then he stops at Bezek to muster them. They're going to cross the Jordan River and go over to Jabesh Gilead, which is the top of the right arrow there. And you can see where the region of Ammon is, where they've come from. And the people of Israel were three hundred. Thousand, those are the people like from the north uh, in Israel. And the men of Judah from the south were 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have, what's that next word? Salvation. This is a salvation story, friends, about how God saved his people from their enemies. And when the messengers came, they told the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Oh, good, we don't have to lose our eyes and be slaves for the rest of our lives. And therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch, like between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m., and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign, reign over us? Because remember, this is like the third time now Saul becomes king. There was the time that was secret between just him and Samuel. There was a time when he was chosen by Lot. And now there is this time when he leads them into battle, and and that middle time, people had said, "Really, that guy? He was hiding." And they're saying, "Let's go get those fellows and let's kill them. Bring the men that we may put them to death." But Saul said, "Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. This is a salvation story about how God saved His people from their." enemy then samuel said to the people come let us go to gilgal and there renew the kingdom so all the people went to gilgal that there there they made saul king before the lord in gilgal and there they sacrificed peace offerings before the lord and there saul and all the men of israel rejoiced greatly Okay, so what do, we, what do we have to know from this text? I think what we have to know from this text is that the Lord saves His people from a real enemy. You have a real enemy. You may not know it. You may not believe it. You may not feel like it. You have a real enemy. 1 Peter 5, 8 is still true. Satan is like a roaring lion. He is your enemy and he is trying to devour you. You have a real enemy. And look, he is smart. He has been doing this for a very long time. He has a lot of experience in devouring people. You have a real enemy. You have a real enemy in Satan, you have a real enemy in sin, you have a real enemy in death. You have a real enemy. And what the people of Jabesh Gilead knew is that they were helpless unless someone came to save them. And see, this is where you and I have to get to. You and I have to get to the place where we're not trying to save our own selves anymore. I'm going to borrow a phrase from Mark Rogop. He says, God doesn't save people who help themselves. God saves people who are sick of themselves. God saves people who are at the end of themselves. God saves people who know they can't save themselves. God saves people who know they're helpless, who know they're lost in their sins. These are the people that God saves. God saves us from a real enemy. And and you know God saves us just because God is kind. Okay, so if you're if you're with me here in 1 Samuel 11, why don't you turn back with me just a little bit to 1 Samuel chapter 7. So just a couple pages back or a couple scrolls um, back in your text, if you're on a if you're on a digital Bible, and I'm in 1 Samuel chapter 7 here, and the Philistines had surrounded the people. had gathered against the people, and the Philistines are going to do something very similar to the Ammonites. They're going to come in and attack the people of Israel. And remember, the people of Israel, they go to Samuel, and they say, You have to save us. You know, you have to pray to the Lord. So I'm here in verse 8. Uh, Let's start in verse 7. Sorry, verse 7. Chapter 7, verse 7. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And all the people of Israel heard of it. They were afraid of the Philistines. Same old enemies are coming to get us again. And they're afraid because they don't want to be beaten badly by the Philistines again. And so verse 8. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And you know what? Samuel does, and God saves them. And then what happens in the very next chapter? After God saves them in chapter 7, what happens in the very next chapter? That's right. The people come to Samuel and say, you know, you're pretty old, and you're pretty obsolete, and your kids are not walking in your ways, and we're not very happy with how God has been king, so why don't you give us a king? This is in 8, verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you for they have not rejected you. But they have rejected me from being king over them. And this is what they've been doing verse 8. This is what they've been doing for generations ever since I brought them out of the land of Egypt. Okay, so if you're God. I'm glad I'm not God, but if you're God. God. And people that have been saying to you, we're not happy with how you've been king. I don't want you to be king. I want a human king. And then they have their enemy. You give them a king. God gave them a king in in King Saul. Then their enemies, the Ammonites, come against them. And they're out there and they're ready to destroy them. I'd I'd be super tempted to just say, you know what? You got your king. You and your king figure this out. Wouldn't you? You asked for a king? You wanted a king to lead you out into battle, to go before you, to fight your, fight your battles, to beat up people like the Ammonites and the Philistines? Go ahead, you got them. You, you go ahead and you take care of this now. But what does God do? God saves them because God is merciful. And who does God use to save them? the king that they were asking for. God is so kind that he he uses the very king that they rejected him in asking for. Think of God's mercy in this. The Lord saves. The Lord saves us from a real enemy. The Lord saves us because he is merciful. And look, the Lord saves with extremely flawed people. You think of flaws in people, you have to think of Saul. Okay, so he gets anointed by Samuel. He's going to be king. And the main thing he's going to do as king is lead his people out in battle. And his uncle says, so you were gone a long time. You know, what were you doing? And he's like, well, I guess we were talking with Samuel. You know, can't really avoid it because... Everyone kind of knows we were with Samuel. And he says, oh, yeah, what did you and Samuel talk about? And, oh, it was about the donkeys. He's afraid to bring it up. And then they go through this, Israel goes through this big, long process of figuring out where the king is going to come from. And the tribe of Benjamin is selected. And then out of the tribe of Benjamin, the clan of the Matarites is selected. And then out of that tribe, Saul is selected. And where is Saul? He's hiding in the baggage. Is this the kind of guy you want to lead you out against a snake? No, but God uses flawed people. How? Through the power of his spirit. By giving flawed people the strength to do stuff that they could not do by themselves. So here's what I'm saying. I'm saying the Lord saves. The Lord saves. He saves from real enemies. He saves because he's merciful. And he saves. He uses flawed people. If you've been in church for a while. You know he uses flawed people. But look when we have. When we're thinking about how the Lord saves. We just have to think about. How the only time there was. Not a flawed person. You know, he came into the world, and of course, you know, I'm thinking of Jesus, no flaws. Comes into the world, comes to his own people, and they reject him. And he goes to Jerusalem, and he dies for your sins and for mine. So that we can be saved. He does this because he's merciful. He does this because we have a real enemy. And that enemy is Satan and sin and death. And if he doesn't do that, we go to hell. We live disfigured, disqualified, and disgraced lives. Except that the Lord saves. The Lord saves. So what should we do? Well, I think it's pretty clear what they did. They rejoiced greatly. Do you see that in the text there? Look at the last verse there in chapter 11. And all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Greatly. Why why should we rejoice greatly? Because I think sometimes sometimes we're tempted to have a low view of rejoicing. We're tempted to have a low view of singing. We're tempted to have a low view of praise. We're tempted to we're tempted to just say we got to focus on the next fight. But why why should we rejoice greatly? Well, the first reason is because this is the natural right thing to do. We should look up and say, thank you. That is the natural right thing to do. I mean, they were thinking about we could have had all of our right eyes gouged out with a sharp stick. And they were really, really thankful that that didn't happen. But look what they avoided, what the Lord saved them from is so much smaller Than what the Lord has saved you and I from. Slavery to sin and death and Satan and hell. Think of how short term what God saved them from would have been. Versus how long term what God has saved us from. And so it is just natural and right to give thanks for God's salvation. To rejoice in how God has saved us. Second, the, the second reason we need to rejoice greatly is we, when we rejoice in the Lord, we take on the Lord's character, okay? So when, Sa- when Saul is thinking about how the Lord has saved them, he becomes merciful. When Saul thinks about God's mercy and is rejoicing in God's mercy as God has saved them, He becomes merciful. So look at verse 13. So they say, who said Saul shouldn't reign over us? Let's bring him here and kill him. Verse 13. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked his salvation in Israel. A key reason we rejoice in the Lord. So we rejoice in the Lord's mercy is so that we become merciful. A key reason we rejoice in the Lord's justice is so we become just. A key reason we rejoice in the Lord's grace is so we become people that are full of grace. I read a book one time that the title really, really sums it up, and it is You Become What You Worship. And that's true in a good direction, and that's true in a bad direction. If you listen to songs all day long that really degrade women, eventually that will shape how you think about women. If you read article after article after article after article about success and a certain definition of success, that will shape how you think of success eventually. We become what we worship, so we want to make sure we're worshiping God, so we become godly. So rejoice. Look, singing is important because as we sing, it helps shape who we're becoming because it shapes what we worship. The Lord saves. He saves from a real enemy He saves because he's merciful and he uses flawed people. The Lord saves by himself that he is our God and he saves us through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And so what do we do? Well, we give thanks because this is a natural and the right thing to do. What do we do? Well, we rejoice so that we become more and more like Jesus. We become more and more godly and and. Third, we rejoice so that we have courage for the next battle. So this is not Saul's last battle. This is not the people's last battle. This is not the last time they will have to trust God. So they need to make sure they rejoice this time God came through for them. So that they will be more likely to trust God next time they're in a fight and they're scared and they don't know what to do. You want to make sure you celebrate God's victories when you've had a victory. So that you have courage for the next fight. Because there's going to be another fight. Romans chapter 16 verse 20 where he says... That the Lord of peace will soon crush Satan under your heels. That is true. God will give us the victory. But he hasn't yet. Right now, we're still living with 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. That our adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion. Seeking whom he may devour. And so what we need to do is trust the Lord who saves, because only the Lord can save. And then when he does, celebrate those victories so we have courage for the next fight. So here's what I'm saying. I'm saying the Lord saves, and so that's the big truth that the Bible comes back to again and again. And so our response to that is we need to rejoice greatly, again and again, rejoice greatly. I think this is the kind of people we want to be. We want to be thankful, rejoicing people rather than ungrateful, entitled, demanding people. So what we do is we rejoice greatly in the Lord who saves. So we're going to sing victory in Jesus so we can remember how the Lord saves. And what I'd, like, what I'd like to have happen here is for you to sing this at the top of your lungs. Rejoice greatly in the God who saves. So that, because this is the right thing to do, because this will help us become more godly, and because this will give us courage for the next fight. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that there is victory in Jesus. Lord, give us grace to sing And Lord, accept our praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.